This is Lee Habib, and all show long, a special Father's Day edition of Our American Stories. And we're telling good stories and not-so-good stories. Father's Day, a complicated day for a lot of people who had dads who either weren't present or weren't there at all, or were mean and just tough. And we tell those stories, too, because so many people hear the word Father's Day, and it brings them joy. A heck of a lot of others. Well, it's quite the opposite. And we have now author Leslie Leyland Fields to tell a difficult story about her dad. She lives on Alaska's Kodiak Island, an island community of 15,000. She's written numerous books, and you can learn more about her award-winning work at lesliealandfields.com. This piece she's sharing with us today is entitled Forgiving My Worthless Father. Here's Leslie. I never called my father worthless. That was his own word for himself. I had other words to describe him, but in a way he was right. He said it on the phone after I told him I was flying down to see him from my home in Alaska to the rehab facility in Florida. My sister had flown down already and was there with him now. Other siblings were coming later. He had had a stroke the week before and now could barely speak. I'll see you in about three weeks, I said, trying to make my voice cheerful on the phone to lift him from his misery. I'm not worth, he stumbled. Of course you're worth it, I protested, horrified. But I knew instantly what he meant. In the human balances of justice and fairness, he had done nothing to deserve this kind of sacrifice and attention from his children. He could not or would not hold a job, leaving us deeply impoverished and ashamed throughout our childhood. He seemed incapable of forming relationships and treated his children as though we were invisible, except for the sexual abuse visited upon some of us. Soon after we grew up and left our house, he moved to Florida to live alone, thousands of miles from his children. I was glad. I saw my father three times in the next 30 years, always me traveling thousands of miles to see him. I went each time needy and hopeful that he would somehow express interest in me, show some kind of affirmation. I left each time hurt, hollow, he would barely speak to me, and when he did, he ridiculed my faith. The last time I saw him, I resolved never to go back. But eight years later, I was gently pushing his wheelchair down the hallway, sharing meals with him, watching TV in his room, reading to him. In all of it, I could not shake the injustice and inequity that every gift and kindness given he had never shown to me, ever. But something else was even stronger, a desire to forgive. I remembered what I believed, that God had released me from my debts against him, and I knew he required me to do the same for those who owed me. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Could I not extend the freedom I had been given to him? I began to try, 
moving slowly from what C.S. Lewis calls need love to gift love, looking past my blinding needs as a daughter to see the pain in his life. Had anyone loved him? How might I have hurt him? After that visit, I knew I would return. I began praying for him, calling and sending gifts and letters. I realized it was not justice or equity I wanted most of all, but relief. Often we think the cost of forgiving is too high, but we do not consider the cost of not forgiving. I found relief in releasing his debts against me, especially as I realized my father could not pay what he owed me, nor can many parents. I found the yoke of forgiveness then lighter than the yoke of hurt and hate. I found the yoke of caring for him easier than the burden of abandoning him. And love came back, yes, in small doses. He called me amazing one day. He phoned on my birthday. When I came to visit, he didn't want me to leave. All of this was new. All of this broke my newfound heart. Forgiving my father has changed me. The broken and bitter parts of me are healing. One forgiveness has led to others and to my own apologies from those I know I have hurt. I am moving toward the person I hope to be. My father was touched as well. In the last two years of his life, my worthless father was surrounded and blessed by the very ones he had harmed. I believe he felt loved, perhaps for the first time. We cannot heal all the broken families of the world, but we can begin here with ourselves and our own families. With God's forgiveness and love, anything is possible. And a special thanks to Leslie Leyland Fields. My goodness, what a beautiful piece. And by the way, she's referring to need love and gift loves, and that's from C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. And if you have never read this book or know who C.S. Lewis is, it was written in 1960, and it's as meaningful today. Pick it up. I found the yoke of forgiveness lighter than the yoke of hurt and hate. Love came back. He called me amazing one day. Forgiving my father, Leslie said, changed me. By the way, I think the most important line, the cost of forgiving is high, but we don't consider the cost of not forgiving. Leslie Leyland Fields, beautiful story, a reconciliation and healing with her dad, here on Our American Story.
And we continue with our special Father's Day edition of Our American Stories. And now to a special Father's Day story from Kent Nurburn. Kent was 40 years old when he had his first child, a son. Here's Kent on what that meant to him and how he faced the greatest challenge of all fathers, how to be there for your child. I did not set out to be a father. Indeed, having children was the furthest thing from my mind. It was not that I disliked children. On the contrary, I loved them. But I was young, my life was complicated, and I knew that having a child would be the greatest complication of all. And I knew if I were to have children, I wanted to do it right. I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be the best father I could be. And so when I found out my wife was pregnant, I was excited. I knew my life was about to change, and I prepared as best I could for this change. But nothing I could do, nothing I could think, nothing I could even imagine could have prepared me for that moment when I first held my son in my arms and looked down at that child that was part of me, but apart from me, and looked in his eyes and saw a separate being looking back at me with an awareness and a consciousness that was completely separate from my own. I was face to face with one of life's greatest miracles, and I was humbled and overjoyed. But I was also concerned. I was in my early forties, and I knew that the shaping of this child and bringing him to a worthy manhood was at least partially in my hands. What would happen if I were not to live to see him into adulthood? What would he know of what I thought was important to life, of what I wanted him to be, of what I wanted him to understand about the journey that I had made and the journey he had before him? I had lived a full life. I had seen joys and sorrows. I had made mistakes and I had had successes. I, like you, like all of us, had walked a complicated path and on that path had learned many lessons that I wanted to share and pass along. The thought in my heart was simple. We are born male. We must learn to be men. What did I want him to know on this journey to what I hoped would be a worthy manhood? I am lucky. I am a writer. I could set these words down for him that gave the fullest and deepest and clearest expression to the deepest feelings in my heart. And I could leave them for him so that when he needed them, they would be there for him. How often we stumble and falter at the moments when we want to speak most honestly from the heart. In this, I am no different than anyone else. But I had the chance to do what we all dream of doing because I could put these thoughts, these feelings down in words. And those are the words that I offered to my son, to your son, to every man's son, in letters to my son. Kent now shares one of those lessons he wrote for his son, a lesson on giving. The miracle of giving. As I write this, Christmas is approaching. It is my favorite time of the year. For this one brief season, we count our money not to measure our own security, but to see how much we can give. For this one season, we look to make others happy and to find our joy in the happiness they receive. How simple a lesson, but how easily forgotten. Almost as quickly as the day ends, we once again become takers, measuring our happiness by what we can gain for ourselves. 
just days before we were valuing our lives by the joy we would bring other people. Suddenly, we are back to the practical business of assessing all our actions by how they will benefit us. What a sad transformation. How can we forget so quickly? Giving is one of our most wonderful and beneficial acts. It is a miracle that can transform the heaviest of hearts into a place of warmth and joy. True giving, whether it be of money, time, concern, or anything else, opens us. It fills the giver and warms the receiver. Something new is made where before there was nothing. This is what we have such a hard time remembering. We instinctively build our lives around getting. We see accumulation of status, of money, of recognition as a way of protecting ourselves and our families, or as our due for being hardworking members of society. Little by little, we build walls of security around ourselves and we begin to understand the good things in our lives as the things we can lose. Giving becomes an economic transaction. What I give away must be subtracted from who I am. So even the smallest gifts are weighed on the scales of self-interest. Even when we reach out and give, we need the return of being noticed and praised, so our hearts are really motivated by the praise we will be getting, not by the pure joy of opening to the needs of another. We are locked in a prison of our own self-interest, and we are blind to the fact that our real growth and happiness would be better served by the very actions we resist performing. The only way to break out of this prison is to reach out and give. Each Christmas I rent a Santa suit and go out onto the streets just to teach myself this lesson anew. In that Santa suit, there can be no subtle playing for self-congratulation or benefit. No one knows who I am. I am simply Santa the man who gives. I go into nursing homes, grade schools, hospitals. I stop and talk to kids in parking lots and bring presents to people who need them. Parents pass me notes and make requests, some wanting me to reassure the children of the reality of Santa, others just wanting me to pay attention to their child. One time a Jewish family took me aside and asked me to speak to their little boy. He was the only Jew in his kindergarten class. He thought Santa wouldn't care about him because he was Jewish, so he was afraid to come forward when Santa came into his room. I sat with him and his parents, and we talked about Hanukkah and giving, and in the end he gave me a hug and said he wouldn't be afraid anymore. It might have been strange theology, but it was good humanity. Being Santa cost me money, time, and no small amount of grief. One time two young kids ran a stop sign and banged their car into mine, and I couldn't bring myself to turn them in because how can Santa press charges on Christmas Eve? But despite every inconvenience that it involves, I would not give up playing Santa for anything. I receive too much in return. People who are focused on getting can never understand this. They might think that what I do is praiseworthy. They might even say, that must make you feel good. What they don't understand is that beyond feeling good, it is creating good. It is bringing good into the world when before there was nothing. Giving is a generative act. When you give of yourself, something new comes into being. Two people who moments before were trapped in separate worlds of private cares suddenly meet each other over a simple act of sharing. Warmth, even joy, is created. The world expands, a bit of goodness is brought forth, and a small miracle occurs. You must never underestimate this miracle. Too many good people think they have to become Mother Teresa or Albert Schweitzer or even Santa Claus and perform great acts if they are to be givers. They don't see the simple openings of the heart, 
that can be practiced anywhere with almost anyone. Try it for yourself. Do it simply if you like. Say hello to somebody everybody ignores. Go to a neighbor's house and offer to cut the lawn. Stop and help someone with a flat tire. Or stretch yourself a little bit. Buy a bouquet of flowers and take it to a nursing home. Take $10 out of your pocket and give it to someone on the street. Do it with a smile and a lilt in your step. No pity, no hushed tones of holy generosity. Just give it, smile, and walk away. Little by little you will start to understand the miracle. You will start to see into the unprotected human heart, to see the honest smiles of human happiness, and you will be able to see humanity in places you never noticed it before. Slowly, instinctively, you will start to feel what is common among us, not what separates and differentiates us. Before long, you will discover that we have the power to create joy and happiness by our simplest acts of caring and compassion. You will see that we have the power to unlock the goodness in other people's hearts by sharing the goodness in ours. And most important, you will find the other givers. No matter where you live or where you travel, whether you speak their language or know their names, you will know them and become one with them because you will recognize each other. You will see them in their small acts because you will recognize those acts and they will see you in yours. And you will know each other and embrace each other. You will become part of the community of humanity that trusts and shares and dares to reveal the softness of its heart. Once you become a giver, you will never be alone. And that's Kent Nurburn. And my goodness, we are born male. We must learn to be men. And this may be the best line that I'd heard in a very long time. And it's so simple and so true. Beyond feeling good, it is creating good. And that's what he said about giving. And the ultimate act of giving, of course, is the sacrificial giving we do for our own children as fathers. Kent Nurburn's story. We continue our special edition of Our American Stories, our Father's Day edition, after these messages. continue here with Our American Stories in our special Father's Day edition. And up next, Taylor Brown, who's the author of a beautiful piece in Garden and Gun called Two for the Road, a son's eulogy for his father. Taylor, thanks for joining us. Tell me a little bit about your dad, when he was born, how he was special, and where did his love for motorcycles come from? He was born on the 4th of July and that always kind of meant something to me. I'm not sure why, you know, when we would hear fireworks on 4th of July, he'd say it was for his birthday. And until I got a little bit older, that's what I, I really thought. And he was the kind of man to me that that was no surprise that there would be fireworks for him. My dad had 
a little bit of a, you know, a stretched and, and tough relationship with his own father. And one thing that always meant so much to me was that he really went against the grain. That was not the relationship that he had with me or with my sister. He was very gentle and, and very understanding, even though I could tell sometimes that it was it was hard for him, you know. He mainly grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. As I say in the piece, he had this bicycle route delivering papers, and then he did it on his scooter. And I really think that that's where his love of two wheels began and and really stemmed from. You know, he would always talk about those times delivering the paper. I could just see him start to kind of grin. I guess there's such a freedom at that age um, doing that. I was probably about five when he got his first motorcycle he'd had since since I'd been around. And he got this Harley Davidson Sportster. And, you know, so much of my childhood was I remember being wedged on the backseat of it and going on trips, both long trips. We'd go on what they call poker runs. But was what was even more meaningful to me was we used to do this thing we called the loop. I grew up on this little place called St. Simons Island, uh, Georgia, on the Georgia coast, about an hour south of Savannah. And around dusk, a lot of nights, we would get on his bike and I would sit on the back seat and we would do what we call the loop around the island. It's not a very big, you know, island, I think 11 miles long and four miles wide. But we had these different, this exact, we would do the same route, you know, and hit the same spots where we go over this causeway and we'd see the marsh when the sun was going down. And we go through the tunneled oaks and we would go through what they call the village, which is um, down where the fishing pier is. And he would always go in this little alley between a couple of the bars and wrap the throttle. And so, so much of my childhood grew up attached to that motorcycle. It was really through the motorcycle that I think that he found the bridge to really connect. You know, he worked so much when I was a younger kid up until around high school. And around the time I was in late middle school, high school, he was really, I could just tell he made such an effort to connect and we did it through motorcycles. So I got a little bit older, you know, I was probably 13 or 14 and we got a a pair of dirt bikes. And for me, it became even more meaningful because I was actually born with uh, club feet and I had a bunch of reconstructive surgeries from the time I was in uh, a child all the way up through high school, which meant I spent a lot of time on crutches and um, not able to run and jump and play sports to the same level as aggressively as I wanted to. But on a motorcycle, all of that disappeared. And so we would ride these dirt bikes together and we would we would trailer them, you know, all through the back roads and look for old borrow pits and trails to ride. Taylor, you talk about the time your dad let you ride his prized 90th anniversary Harley Davidson Wide Glide in your piece. Tell me about that experience. We were on these back roads in North Florida somewhere, just pine trees and straight roads, tar snakes. And um, we had stopped for gas and he said, do you want to ride it? And so I said, oh, heck yeah, you know, I want to ride it. So I was pretty excited. I was on the on a, you know, a much smaller, lighter, less powerful bike. So riding his uh, was a big treat. It's a beautiful bike, you know, chrome. He had modified it to be much more powerful. It was a really neat bike. So we, we ride, you know, for a while and um, we pull into this, uh, I think it was an old gas station that had a gravel lot. And, you know, I'm pretty excited and I stick my foot out, you know, to, to, um, to, to prop the bike up as we stop and my heel just starts slipping on the gravel. And it was one of those things, sometimes these things happen almost in slow motion. And, you know, this is a big 600-pound bike, and it starts to just heel over, and I have not got the kickstand down in time. And I just feel it, you know, 
there's nothing I can do past a certain point. I'm not strong enough to hold it up. So my first big time riding his prized Y glide, I drop it in this parking lot. And, um, uh, you know, obviously there's going to be some scratches and dents and all that kind of stuff. And I look at him, my biggest worry is, you know, the way how he's going to react, you know, I feel just, uh, ashamed. And he looks at me and he says, it happens to the best of us. And he's right. You know, if you ride a motorcycle for any length of time, you will drop it at some point, if not just once, maybe multiple times. But what a difficult thing to remember in the heat of the moment and to say to your son when he's just dropped your prize motorcycle. And I could tell that it wasn't necessarily even easy for him to say that. He was frustrated at the bike being dropped, but that's not how he reacted. And that was something that, you know, I'll, I think probably my biggest lesson from him was something that I learned that day and has st- stuck with me because it, it came back again and again. It, it is that sometimes character requires you to place what is difficult over what is easy to um, that that that's what it requires, you know, and I just really saw it that day that really, you know, stood stuck with me. And your dad and you, you also built a bike together. Tell me about that bike and that experience. In uh, late 2016, we built kind of our first motorcycle together. And we called it Blitzen because we built it over Christmas and it had these big chrome handlebars that looked like antlers. And it was the tank was kind of this dark red color that reminded me of Santa's sleigh. And I started doing these long rides on that bike solo. And my dad had always done these long rides, sometimes on the weekend. When he was 67, he rode 9,000 miles all around the country. I hadn't done a lot of that on my own. And it was really when I started riding the bike long distance solo, exploring those back roads that I really understood what he found in doing that and enabled us to really, really connect in a way that we had it before. Isn't that strange in some ways, but it made me understand him so much better. Understand, I think, really the workings of his soul and heart and what moved him and what he found out there. It's like I found the same thing that he had he had found out on the road. And, well, like a lot of things I think that are so moving, it's hard to describe, right? Of course, there's all these words that we can put around it. Is it free, the freedom of the road? Is it discovery? All of those things, kind of the, the feeling of, of this individualism of having not a whole lot to rely on, but your own self and a few tools and a, and a bike that may or may not, you know, break down along the way and the help of your, you know, fellow men and women that help you along the way. That's part of it. But I think that it's, it really is something else. It's, it just lets your soul loose a little bit. All the anxieties and the fears and the doubts, just when you're out there riding, they tend to just blow away. I'm not sure exactly how it happens. Maybe it's because you have to be so aware of your surroundings. You are on a motorcycle, I think, uniquely vulnerable. You are closer to death. Taylor, you write in your piece that your life was changed forever riding the bike you and your dad built together. Tell me about that. I had started on a long motorcycle ride down to New Orleans. I was actually going down to visit his sister, my aunt, Marianne. And at the time, I was living in Wilmington, North Carolina, so it was a pretty long ride. And I decided to come down south and stay with my parents for one night uh, down south of Savannah and then continue on to New Orleans. 
think I spent the first night in Charleston. And the next morning I met my dad in Savannah and we had lunch and we had a drink up on the one of the hotel bars that looks over all the all the river traffic in Savannah. It was just a really special day. And then that night uh, at home, he helped me come up with my route for the rest of the way to New Orleans. And this was not using Google Maps. You know, he had all these old atlases that had dog-eared pages that he'd used again and again to plan his trips from long before the days of, you know, global positioning systems and um, smartphones and all those things. And we wrote out the directions actually on note cards I put in a sandwich bag and kept in my pocket so I could, you know, find my way. I could just pull over, pull out the cards and see where my next turn was. All these little towns that, you know, most people have probably not even heard of, you know, that I was going through. So, um, that morning I took off, took off. It was a misty morning and I headed South on highway 17 and I was making my way toward, uh, Wakulla Springs, Florida. I stopped for gas that afternoon and my dad had ridden to lunch down the same highway, down highway 17 to a little diner called Stephens right over the Georgia, Florida line. And he'd actually sent me a picture of a model car they had on display at the diner. It was a 1940 Ford Coupe. And that's a very special car to us because it kind of stars in uh, my novel, Gods of Howl Mountain. It's this bootleggers car and one of the most popular cars for bootlegging in the early stock car racing days. And my dad and I had gone to car shows to actually go see these cars uh, as part of research for that book. So he sent me some pictures from there and I don't think I had a chance to, to reply back, and I just kept going along my way. So I got into Wakulla Springs, uh, which is south of Tallahassee, about 4 o'clock, and I got a call from my mom. And um, I could tell immediately that something had happened. We didn't have a lot of details, but she knew that um, he had been on his way back from lunch on Highway 17, that same stretch of highway that I'd ridden just a few hours earlier, and a concrete truck had pulled out in front of him. And I went to the airport to rent a car to drive home. Certainly, I wasn't going to um, ride the motorcycle back uh, at this time. It would take too long, and I didn't want my mom worried. And I was at the airport renting a car in Tallahassee, and my mom called and, and said that he was gone. He hadn't made it. And I was standing outside, and it was about sunset, and the sky was lit up just fire-colored. And I thought of all these trips, motorcycle trips that my dad had taken down to Florida. He used to love to go to a place called Cedar Key, another place called uh, Hudson. And he would go to the Gulf Coast where you could see the, the sun go down over the water. And he would send me photos of a sky that looked just like that. And I had this feeling that he was gone, but he would always be with me. And I saw him in that sky. And, you know, it's strange how things happen. I went back inside to talk to the rental car people, and the woman at the desk gave me the number of the Harley-Davidson dealership in Tallahassee if I needed to store my bike while I went home. And she said, um, tell them that Sunshine sent you. She said that was her biker name. You know, it just so happened that she knew everyone up there. And it's strange how people find you in, in times of need like that. Um, but it always felt like there was some extra connection with us and that, you know, I'd ridden that same motorcycle down that same road that day. I was on a long ride of my own. I was doing all the things that he taught me, you know, um, and I couldn't f help but feel that, you know, he was always going to be uh, not too distant. Um, I, I drive home the next morning. I pick up my sister who's flown in from San Francisco on the red eye at the airport and we um, go home to my mom's house. 
And one of the first things that she does is bring out this manila envelope. His longtime, my dad was retired, but his longtime secretary had brought it over that morning. And it was just labeled if. And inside he had written letters that were addressed to each of us. One to my mom, one to my sister, and one to me. And he said, Taylor, if you are reading this, something has happened to me. I assume it was sudden and I didn't have the chance to say goodbye. For that, I am truly sorry. I am sorry that I won't see even more of your novels published or bikebound continue to grow. I regret that I won't see you find that right partner to share your life or be able to spend time with you talking and riding motorcycles. And we didn't make it to the Isle of Man. I know this is a difficult time, but remember the good times we share. Sun and fun, Sturgis, Dirt Bites, Moonshiners Festival, Blitzen, Austin, and on and on. I have truly enjoyed all the time we spend together throughout your life. What I want to stress in this letter is how much I love you and how proud that I am and always will be. Um, that's kind of a, a short excerpt from it um, that, uh, you know, gives you an idea of, of the kind of letter he wrote. Um, and how meaningful um, it would be to read something like this. Um, so after the, you know, the memorial service and, and the eulogy and, and when we kind of done all of the things that you have to do around uh, someone's death, I left the motorcycle down in Wakulla Springs under a cover. And I just felt like the circle had to be, you know, the loop had to go on. The circle had to go on. Um, and I had to finish the ride. Um there was very little doubt in my mind that it was the most healing thing that I could do. And it was the way that I would feel the closest to my dad. Um, I have to give my mom um, a lot of credit right at this moment, because obviously I didn't want to scare her even more and, and didn't want to finish the ride, you know, without her uh, blessing. And she said to me, she'd always grown up loving horses. And she said, you know, if you loved horses, Taylor, and something happened to me on a horse, the last thing that I would want your father to do is take horses away from you. I would want you to ride. And so uh, one of my best friends drove me down to Wakulla Springs, and uh, we spent the night there. And the next morning, I took off for the rest of the journey to New Orleans. Um, I will tell you, it was a little bit of a blur um, but there were some really meaningful instances along the way. I remember the first time I stopped for gas, it was it's only late October and it was Florida, but it was very cold and I stopped and, and had some coffee and I was at this little gas station, you know, in the middle of a bunch of piney woods, not much else around. And there were katydids everywhere, which I'd rarely seen. And, you know, katydids are giant, gentle, big green bugs just all over everything. And for some reason that just meant a lot to me. They just felt like magic to see them all over the place like that. And, you know, at one point my chain was loose and I stopped at this little gas station and I was trying to fix it, break this axle bolt loose with, you know, I didn't have very many tools. I had this old crescent wrench, which wasn't good for it. And, you know, this guy turns up in this kind of ratty old rusting truck and ends up giving me this shiny set of snap-on tools, very fancy, goes inside. He's not even worried about me running off with the tools and um, let me fix the bike. And I went inside and gave those tools back to him and told him how much it meant to me and just told him a little bit of my story and, and exactly why it meant so much to me and why this trip meant so much and what had happened to my dad. And 
you know, complete stranger. And we're both standing there at 8 a.m. in a gas station coming to tears and, and hugging, you know, 10 minutes after we met. I made it to the rest of the way to New Orleans to my aunt's and crazy enough, that motorcycle broke down in her driveway as if it knew that it just had to get me there, uh, you know, to New Orleans. And I ended up being down there for, uh, you know, quite a few days trying to fix it and, you know, get back on the road and ended up being a really healing time. Actually, New Orleans uh, is a second home for me. It's full of family and friends. And I was able to go explore a lot of my dad's old haunts around the city, old bars that I know he went to, old pool halls. Uh, There's now um, an oak in Audubon Park that we've uh, dedicated to him. Um, And so to be there in New Orleans was really special too. It it felt like, you know, part of him is there and always will be. I think that there are men who want to be like their fathers and men who don't. And I've never had any question of which one I am. And what a great way to end a piece. There are men who want to be like their fathers and men who don't. You know, the great Charles Kettering said, every father should remember one day his son will follow his example, not his advice. And we talk too much and don't show enough. And that's what dads need to do more of. A special thanks to Taylor for sharing that story. And I can just picture him sharing this story with a complete stranger who's lent him his very expensive toolkit. By the way, this happens all over this great country. Acts of random kindness like that and the two guys hugging because he had had the guts, the temerity, the decency to share his story with a stranger. And we should do it more often. That's what we try and do every day here on this show is share stories with strangers and then we all get just a little bit closer. By the way, your Father's Day stories, your father's stories, good, bad, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Taylor Brown's story, his father's story, a motorcycle story, an American story, a classic here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and all show long, we are going to be celebrating, honoring, and talking about Father's Day and telling stories about good fathers and not-so-good fathers, because Father's Day is not the cheery day it should be for a whole lot of Americans, because they had neither present dads or particularly good dads. And we start off with a story by Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend who had lost her husband to cancer. The name of his piece, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. Here's Willie. 
Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems, but once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash, mountains in whatever direction I looked, and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant, you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco, who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed? still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized 
that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form. On my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories. More of our Father's Day special after these messages. Our American Stories, and we're dedicating the whole show today to fathers. Not every father, by the way, is actually a child's biological parent, and we're going to be digging into many different ways people are fathers to children. There are stepfathers, uncles, mentors, coaches, you name it. Lots of men step into the breach for deceased or absent or inadequate biological fathers. One man who's taken this to an extraordinary level is one of my personal heroes, John Croyle. John was a world-class football player for Coach Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama. But he had a different calling in life than playing in the NFL. Right out of college, John started the Big Oak Ranch, a Christian home for children needing a chance. 
Over the decades, John, his bride, their children, and the house parents at Big Oak Ranch have taken in and raised over 2,000 children abandoned by their biological parents. And by the way, John has some extraordinary children. His son, Brody, played and quarterbacked at the University of Alabama and then went to the NFL and played with the Kansas City Chiefs. He's now back at the ranch. And John's beautiful daughter, who is a world-class athlete herself, a basketball player, is at the ranch too, and she's running the school there and running it the way you'd imagine a coral would run things. Well, here's John sharing a story from a few years back, a tragic story, but one that really shows men how to be real fathers. Five years ago, phone call. Hello? Second one there was call me. I said, what's up? He said, where are you headed? I said, work. He said, I know where two kids are. I said, okay. Where are they? First question in the Bible is, where are you? I figured if that's God's first question, it might not be a bad one for me to ask. I said, where are they? He said, I arranged me. I went to the steel truck stop in Steel, Alabama. I walked in, and their corner's a round table with this woman, her sister, and two small children. I walked up. She said, are you him? I said, I guess. I'm the only him here. And she said, you that guy that I see on TV that gives kids chances. I said, yes, ma'am. That's what we do. Well, here's my boy. He's 11. He just got back for three weeks to Florida with some friends of mine. Here's my little girl. She's 10. She, just, she didn't go to Florida. She visited a friend of mine every other weekend in Anniston. And I looked at the kids, and I've done this a long time. And I can spot an orphan, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And I can also spot a child that's been abused. And I looked at them, and they have what we call shark eyes. Dead, empty, lifeless eyes. And I said, how you doing? And then it hit me. She sold them on the internet to pedophiles. And I said, I want y'all to listen to me. I have four promises. I love you. I will never lie to you. I'll stick with you till you're grown. There's boundaries. Don't cross them. The girl went to the girl's ranch. The boy went to the boy's ranch. A month later, the little girl's in the van riding down the uh, Interstate 59 with her house dad. We built a 5,400 square foot home. We put a godly couple in the home. They would give them eight kids and they raise them up. Just old school raise them up stuff. And it ain't rocket science. And she tugged on her house dad's sleeve. He said, what, baby? She said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure, what? You really love me? Can I sidebar a moment? Every child in your care asks that question every morning. Dad, will you love me if I get pregnant? Dad, will I still be your boy if I get a DUI? I still gonna be your boy. You still gonna love me. They ask it every day. If I screw up, are you still gonna come get me? <laughs> that's the time you play like God. You go get them no matter what. Because that's what real men do. When they was sitting there and the dad said, why, baby? She said, I need to tell you something. She started wringing her hands. She said, do you remember? Do you remember those two men I told you about? He said, yeah. They really hurt me. Once they were hurting my brother and he was screaming and he was bleeding 
And I was kicking them and I was hitting them, trying to make them stop. And they wouldn't stop. Then they went and got the camera and they hurt us all over again. And then they tied us to, taped us to a chair and they, they made us watch them do ugly things to our mama. I never told nobody. When I found out, I took off the school. I picked her up and I hugged her for about three minutes. I backed away from her and I said, do you remember those four promises I made to you? She said, about loving me? I said, yeah. She said, yes, sir, I remember those. I said, you get one extra promise. And if you want to put my life down into one sentence, this is it. I took her face in my hands. I said, as long as I breathe, no one's ever going to hurt you like that again. First words out of our mouth, thank you. Nope. Appreciate it. Nope. First words out of our mouth, would you go tell my brother? Even then, she had it, whatever that it is. Can't define it, but she had it. I found the boy. I put him in my truck. I looked at him. I said, I know. He said, you do? He thought I knew him and three boys were smoking out behind the barn. <laughs> Sometimes you just be real quiet. You'll learn a whole lot more than asking 10 million questions. And then when I said, no, that's not it. God, I can't believe I told you. But anyway, <laughs> I said, no, your sister told me. When I said that, his hands instantly started shaking, his lips started quivering, his eyes filled with tears. He just hung his head. I said, do you want to talk about it? And I'll never forget his words. I can't. I said, look at me, boy. As long as I breathe, no one's ever going to hurt you again. Now, fast forward to a little over two years ago. We're in South Alabama. We're deer hunting. We're in a tree stand. He's 13 years old, never been on a deer hunt. I'm teaching him, trying to. We're sitting there. He drops the binoculars in the tree stand. He drops the gun. Now, those of you that don't hunt, deer can hear real good. <laughs> then he, where are the deer? I said, they're about eight miles down that road. You know, right over there, you could see them running. The whole herd was running out the valley. So anyway... I said, look, just take the binoculars and see if you can see something. So he took binoculars. He's going, <gasps> now I'm going to be honest with you. I said to myself, there's no way in Hades he sees a deer. There ain't no way. He's going, there's a cow. Can we shoot it? <laughs> I said, we're not hunting cow, boy. So then I said, okay, just keep looking. 30 minutes later, the deafest, dumbest doe walks out. She didn't have any eardrums. She came out and somebody had spilled some corn out there or I mean, some stuff. <laughs> but anyway, she was munching on the corn. <laughs> then he gets ready, to, gets ready to shoot. And I said, somebody's going to get killed. <laughs> and then we loaded the gun. <laughs> you know, he missed. Of course he missed. No one had ever taught him. He missed the mark because no one showed him. He fell on the floor of the tree stand. He stared at the hardwood, um, at the plywood. His face was just like his eyes were wide open and the plywood splinters right here and he's just staring. And then once again, it's one of those moments, a wall hit me. When he missed his whole life, he had been told he was sorry, worthless, no count piece of human garbage. And when he missed, he proved everybody right. What a child hears repeatedly, they eventually believe. I picked him up. I said, look at me. He said, yes, sir. I said, no, look at me. Yes, sir. I said, 
The neat thing about God is he always lets you reload. And that deer ain't moved yet. <laughs> when the bullet went over that deer's head, she threw her head up and she was so stupid, she turned sideways to make sure we had a better shot. <laughs> so the second time, he relaxed, he comes in here, <coughs> he drops that doe. I wish you'd seen him drag that doe into camp. He swole up. The doe weighed more than he did. I said, you want to help? You, you just carry the gun in the bucket. I got the deer. He comes dragging it in. The reason he was so proud is that morning when I said, this day, you're the man. This day, you're feeding your family. This day, you're taking care of your little sister. This day, you are a man. And what a story, folks. What a voice. What an American voice. And now you know why John Coyle is my hero. And if you met him, well, he'd be yours and you kind of just did meet him. A father to 2,000 plus children, folks. The phone rings. John Coyle answers it. He steps in. No questions asked. No questions unanswered. Love, always at the end of that phone line. Love, a home, a family. And that's John Coyle's story. The Big Oak Ranch's story in the beautiful town of Gadsden, Alabama. All of these Father's Day stories, a special celebration of Father's Day here on Our American Stories. stories in our special Father's Day edition, and now it's time for me to talk a bit about my own father. I wrote a piece in Newsweek about him and a thing I called the father privilege. Turning boys into men is a dad's job. That was the title. Indeed, it may be the greatest privilege no one in America is talking about, the father privilege. I am one of the privileged ones. Growing up, my dad was very present. He provided for us, put a roof over our heads, put food on the table, and he expected things of us. He expected us to do our best, to be good students, and good people. My parents got married right after dad graduated college, but they never took time to be a married couple. There were always kids. By the time he was 30, he had four of us to take care of. Was he ready for all of it? 
Well, couples didn't ask that question back in the 1950s, and they were probably better off. No matter how long we delay such things, we're never ready. I remember as a kid looking at pictures of him before he was the man he would become. He looked like a grown-up even in high school, as did his peers. Why did he sacrifice so much for us? I learned as I got older that calling what he and my mom did a sacrifice would have irritated them. They were doing what people did. No one back then thought postponing adolescence into their 30s was an option. They started things, started their lives, started families, started careers. One picture from his wedding is my favorite, the young groom grinning as he watches his bride cut their wedding cake, celebrating on a rooftop at a neighborhood building. No wedding planners, no exotic honeymoons. It was a drive to Niagara Falls and back to life. After he left the Air Force, where he served as an officer training future officers, he started teaching history and coaching high school basketball in northern New Jersey. He became a department head, then an assistant superintendent, and one day, he was the boss. There was a sense of inevitability about that outcome. Some people, well, they're just born to run things. What were his dreams? The child of immigrant parents, he didn't think much about such things. His generation was too practical. They didn't sit around talking about how to change the world. They were too busy trying to change their world. My dad's life was a slice of the American dream. A rental house every summer at the Jersey Shore. Family night at the drive-in movies. A pool in the yard and a basketball court over the garage. But he didn't just provide materially for us. He was always there for us, too. He was an old-school dad. There wasn't a lot of hugging or praise. On the rare occasion he said something nice, it meant something. Not bad, he would say after a good effort. If it was a particularly good effort, he would say, not bad, and then repeat it. He wasn't a man who looked back on life with regret. He had little use for taking his own temperature. He had a temper. I was afraid of him, but not physically. I was afraid to let him down, afraid to disappoint him. When he yelled, it made me tremble. His temper had that kind of power. I remember the fights he had with my mom. I never understood them or what they were about. But what kid does? My parents probably didn't know what those fights were about either. Sometimes I thought one of them would just call it quits, but always, the next day would come, and they carried on. As time passed, my dad's temper faded. As my dad got more comfortable in his own skin, he was better able to navigate his own emotions, and he got calmer. Meet him today, and you'd call him laid back. As I got older, I came to appreciate the small things, the daily habits and rituals that my dad shared with my mom. Those rituals and rhythms of life gave me a great sense of stability, a great sense that relationships can last, that love can last. The coffee he started for my mom every morning. The daily run to the supermarket. The evening coffee out by the pool, listening to WOR on a transistor radio. The early dinners at a local bar for pizza. The card games which mom always seemed to win. The habits of love were there for me to observe and imitate. The love I witnessed didn't look like anything I ever saw in the movies. It looked like something better. Something within reach. The constancy, the consistency, the mutual understanding. None of it was terribly exciting, but it was terribly good for me, and it was very good for my parents. Quote, 
The most important thing a father can do for the children is love their mother, said Father Theodore Hesburgh, former president of Notre Dame University. My dad wasn't a religious guy, but he would agree with Hesburgh on that point. And he would agree with theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said this in a letter to his niece before her wedding, quote, It's not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on, the marriage that will sustain your love. That lesson may be the greatest my dad taught me. Marriage sustains love. I sometimes think of the writers who've written about fathers. Most, I suspect, had bad ones, or only remembered the bad things about their dad. Bruce Springsteen once said, quote, I haven't been completely fair to my father in my songs, treating him as an archetype of the neglecting, domineering parent. Anyone who knows Bruce Springsteen's music knows the ominous role his father played in his catalog. It was the birth of Springsteen's own son that prompted a truce between the two. Springsteen tells the story of his dad showing up at his door and the two men sharing a beer. His father said to him, I wasn't so good to you, son, Springsteen recalled in his autobiography. And I said back to my dad, Dad, you did the best you could. It changed our relationship immediately, Springsteen recalled about that encounter. It was a lovely gift. Well, my dad gave me lovely gifts. He taught me how to tie a tie, throw a spiral. He taught me how to think through problems, see both sides of an argument. He taught me the importance of hard work and that talent was overrated. He encouraged me to take risks but not be reckless. He taught me how to play blackjack and poker. He taught me how to read, lead, and learn. But he really taught me how to play basketball. Most importantly, he taught me the importance of simply sticking things out. Finish what you start, he often told me. Much has been written in academia about white privilege, but the privilege that matters most in life, I've come to believe, is the father privilege. I know the advantages my father passed along to me. I would not be the man I am today, the husband or father, without his example. He's 86, and he is still influencing me. Turning boys into men is no duck walk. It's something the state can't do, or a social worker. And it's something mothers can't do alone, as hard as they may try, and as good and heroic as they are. Fathers are uniquely qualified to do this work, and uniquely situated. Dads play a critical and underappreciated role in their daughters' lives, too. And though few people in the media or academia are talking or writing about it, fatherlessness may be the single biggest social problem in America. Rates of sexual abuse, academic and discipline problems, incarceration rates, gang activity, and even poverty itself all increase dramatically when a dad is not present in a child's life. The hole it leaves in the hearts of sons and daughters is underappreciated and devastating. So to all the good dads out there, not perfect dads, just good ones, thank you. Not enough is written about you, the men in this country, taking on the responsibilities and pleasures of fatherhood. And the disappointments, too. Your steadiness and steadfastness may not make for good fiction, but it makes for a good life. Your effort, and you too, Dad, to shape the next generation of husbands and fathers is simply the most important work there is in America. My story, my own dad's story, here on Our American Stories.
we continue with our American stories in our special Father's Day celebration, and we love to hear from daughters. And today we're going to hear from Shiloh Carroza, whom I got to know while teaching at Hillsdale College a couple of years ago. I was there doing a two-week seminar on storytelling. I've been doing it ever since. And I submitted that every student there had a story, and I was seeking them out, personal, something about their town, their family, whatever. And Shiloh was a bit reluctant to talk, and she looked a little out of it. And I was told she was such a good student, and I was a little worried. And so after the class, I asked her if she wouldn't mind staying. I asked her if everything was okay, and if she wanted to opt out, that was fine too. And she told me that she had just learned that her father was dying. We talked for a bit, and then I said, well, maybe you'd want to write about that. And she wasn't sure. She told me that her dad had just performed a, a, a sermon, he's a pastor, at his church about dying. And I thought, well, maybe you should talk about that. Why don't you talk to your dad? She did. She came back and did a beautiful piece two years ago for Father's Day. Well, since then, her dad passed. And so Shiloh... Well, in her heart, she felt like she needed to redo her Father's Day piece. And here it is. For most of us, Father's Day is a day of celebration. For some of us, it's a day of remembering. This is the second Father's Day that I will spend remembering my dad. We all know growing up that for most of us, there will come a day when we have to say goodbye to our parents. But nothing can prepare you for the day your father is rushed to the hospital because it looks like he's having a stroke. And nothing can prepare you for the phone call from your mother telling you, it's not a stroke, it's a brain tumor. Nothing could have prepared me for the two weeks I spent alone in the house while my dad underwent the first of several surgeries. Or for the next two years that we saw him gradually lose his speech and grow quiet as the cancer took over his brain. There are some memories from those last two years I would rather forget. The things that are still too raw to talk about. The words I failed to say when he most needed to hear them. The process of watching the strongest man I knew grow weak and dependent. The moments in which I found myself doing things for him that he did for me when I was little. The sound of the funeral home staff wheeling the body out of the house at 3.30 one night. The feeling of emptiness that came after the funeral ended and everyone went home. And we were once again left with a quiet house and an empty chair. Maybe someday I'll be glad for those memories. But not now. But thankfully... Dad left my family with plenty of good memories from the 19 years I knew him, the 22 years my brother knew him, and the 31 years my mom shared with him. When I look back at all the memories I have, it's hard to pin down one characteristic that explains him or sums up who he was. He was the dad who took us everywhere with him, who would teach us more in a car ride than all our school books combined. He was the dad who put up with the mosquitoes on our family camping trips because, number one, he knew the rest of us liked the outdoors, and number two, he knew there would be s'mores. He was the dad who always paused the movie in the middle of the best scene to analyze the plot out loud with us. 
He was the dad who consistently quizzed us to see if we remembered who wrote his favorite hymn, And Can It Be, before belting it out in church. And in case you were wondering, it was written by Charles Wesley. He was the dad who stayed up into the early hours of the morning with us, talking about anything we wanted, and still managing to teach us something in the process. He was also the dad who sat us down one day and told us that his time was limited, that the tumor the doctors found would give him two years, possibly less. Dad never cried unless either someone had died or unless he found himself overwhelmed by the weight of some profound truth. He was crying when he looked my brother and me in the eyes and told us, you are my best investments. I don't think I grasped what that meant until the funeral when hundreds of people from all walks of life approached me and told me how dad had impacted them. In fact, I still don't fully grasp what that means. It's like all my life dad was planting seeds in me, and some are still in the process of breaking through the soil, but some of them have blossomed, and I recognize them now as pieces of him. My need to talk using my hands, my intuitive drive to find patterns in the world around me and make sense of details, my tendency to overanalyze just about everything. I could go on naming personality traits ad infinitum, but that isn't the most important thing Dad gave me. The most important thing he gave me was the very thing that made me get out of bed the next morning after he died. There is nothing like waking up the next morning and knowing that the world you will wake up to for the rest of your life is one without your father. And that morning, along with many others, the only thing that could make me open my eyes was the knowledge that no matter what had happened, or was still happening, or would happen, God had it all under control. And that was what Dad taught me. But it still hurts. There are plenty of memories that crop up again and again, no matter how much I try to think only of the positive. Because of my dad's forgiveness and faith in Christ, I know where he is now. But that can be hard to remember when the last image burned in your mind is of a body. Death may not be the end, but death is ugly. And for the time, it feels so permanent. For the first year after his death, I realized I kept expecting Dad to come back, to hear him pick up on the other end of the phone, to walk downstairs and see him at his desk in the basement. In some ways, I don't think this will ever go away. I might not expect to find him around the corner, but I keep looking for him, waiting for some kind of reunion. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I won't find that reunion here. Ecclesiastes tells us God has set eternity in our hearts, and I think that ache, that tug that grief causes, is there to remind us that we won't find what we're looking for 
on this side. What we're ultimately looking for isn't just a reunion with people we've lost. In Psalm 73, the writer prays to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The best thing about my dad was that he didn't leave me just longing to have him back. I do want him back. But he helped me see what I really want is so much more. He gave me a picture of God's love as father and maker and friend, and however much I want to be with dad, being with God someday will be that much better. Several months after his diagnosis, Dad gave a talk at a local church to share his journey with them and challenge them to think about their own lives and how they thought about eternity. To quote him, he ended by telling them this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't even imagine it. But God has something even better where he is. Dad, you are now a part of that other side. It still hurts, and I still miss you, and that isn't going to change. But on the best days, I catch myself thinking how I can't wait to tell you about everything that's happened here since you left. And on the worst days, even then, you're only a few more Father's Days away. And you've been listening to Shiloh Carosa, And what beautiful words. My goodness, there's not a dad listening who wouldn't hope for such eloquence, such beauty from a daughter, and such strength and courage. And by the way, what a way to be described. Dad taught us more in a car ride than all the school books combined. He was the dad who stayed up into the early hours talking to us about anything we wanted. He's the dad who told us his time was limited. You are my best investments. And our kids are, no matter what the culture is telling you, no matter what anybody's telling you. Our kids, our children are our best investments. Shiloh Carosa, Hillsdale College's finest, a place where they teach all the beautiful things in life, all the things that matter in life. And my goodness, it's evidenced here in a beautiful piece of writing. Shiloh Carosa's story, her Father's Day story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs>